We're in 1 John. If you'd like to open your Bibles again to 1 John chapter 2. And before we do, let's just review some things that we've talked about. First of all, we've been studying the doctrine of soteriology. And I'm using the terms because I want us to get comfortable with them and not feel intimidated when you hear them. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology, salvation. It is also, it, it talks about how we can be right with God and what God has done for us. So soteriology, we've talked about justification, which is the part in salvation where we are declared righteous. It's not because of something you have, but something that's been done for you. So it's a declaration. It's a legal term. You are justified because of what Jesus Christ has done. Chapter 1 says, we are declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanseth us from all sin. This takes place at the point we realize we have violated God's law, have no way on our own to pay for it, and therefore depend on Christ alone for the payment of our sins. Justification. In God's eyes, you'll often hear this simple phrase. It, it doesn't really give you the rich fullness of it, but justification, what you've probably heard, is just as if I had never sinned. What that really tells us is the debt was fully paid. Therefore, when God looks at us, he does not see us as sinner. He sees us as righteous. We're totally clear of the law. Another part of soteriology is sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which my relationship towards sin is changing. Justification is my relationship toward God. Sanctification is my relationship toward sin. We talk about progressive sanctification. Progressive meaning it goes on. It's not a one time and I am totally sanctified. I totally live a sinless life. It doesn't happen that way. God, though, shows us through sanctification, the process by which my relationship towards sin is changing. Sanctification addresses how we as Christians should live. So as we're looking at John, now, one other statement that hopefully will, will help you put together 1 John. Paul, when he writes, he writes in a very methodical point, 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 point. Paul is much easier to outline. Paul is easier to be able to, to write things down. John does things kind of in a spiral. And you'll see, he'll say something, he'll come back around and say it again, then he'll come back around and say it again, and he adds information to it, but he keeps coming around and repeating himself because he wants you to know something. So if you're reading this and you say, I have a harder time memorizing 1 John than I do some of the other books because... Did I already say that? Did I not say that? When we've quoted at the breakfast table sometimes, we will be saying something, and my wife will look at me, and she said, that's not the verse we're on. And if I'm not focused, I know you can't imagine that I wouldn't be focused sometimes, but if I'm not focused, I will forget which verse we're on. 
So as we read, I want you to notice some things this morning as we study what John is telling us about sanctification. So we're going to see sanctification, how we are changing towards sin, and how we now are to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. For you young people, this is really important. Because as you learn this now, it will bring great blessing for you later. I went back and was reading uh, some old sermons of mine as I was preparing for this. And sometimes this text can be presented, and I'm not accusing other pastors, I'm saying I have done this, where you feel a guilt trip, you begin feeling this heavy weight when we hit verse 15. And what I want you to see, and I started on verse 12 today, which is going to be our text, 12 through 17, because I want you to see how the pieces fit together. John was not guilt-tripping you. God, uh, John was liberating you to no longer be under the influence, under the control of the world. You see, salvation gives us the ability to enjoy life the way God designed life to be and not perverted the way Satan does it. Now, perversion, for some of you who would say, that's not a word that I use. Perverted means instead of going straight, it's crooked. It twists. It doesn't go where it was supposed to go. I can't remember if I've told you this or not. When my children were younger, we lived in a house that had baseboard heat. Some of you know what that is. It's the electric baseboard. And we used to shoot a lot of Nerf arrows in our house, okay? And one Nerf arrow landed behind a curtain on the baseboard heater. And by the time I found it, it looked like this. So it was straight, the tail feathers, and then it bent. And so every time we would shoot it, now it was really good for strategic shooting at your kids around corners. But what I would do is when you'd shoot it, it would go straight, and then all of a sudden it would just go whoop. Now that was perverted. It, was, it doesn't go straight, it twists. So when you hear the word perverted, what you need to think is it's not straight the way God intended, it takes a curve. And that is what Satan does. Satan never comes up with anything good on his own. Anything that Satan tempts you with and he says, this will be so good. Just remember, God gave the good gift and then Satan perverted it. He twisted it to take you where God never designed you to be. Okay, hopefully that will help you. So let's begin at verse 12. And the first point I want you to notice this morning as we look at free to enjoy true living, I want you to notice the reminders of why you can change today. Because depending on how old you are, you probably have picked up habits in your life before you were saved that still want to dominate you. A way of thinking that wants to dominate you. A way of living that tries to dominate you. And it's not the way God designed it to be. Beginning at verse 12. I write unto you little children. The idea here is everybody who is saved, everybody who's in the family. He said, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong. 
And the word of God abideth in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. He says, here's how you can change. You don't have to be stuck in the same old life patterns you've been in. Whether it is language, whether it's thoughts, whether it's actions, you don't have to be stuck that way. Why is that? Notice with me verse 12. Your sins are, are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And you notice what he adds there at the end of the verse? For his name's sake. Why are my sins forgiven today? Not because I'm a good person. Not because I've done something that impresses God. And he says, well, that Mike Felber. Yeah, well, I'll forgive his sins because he... No, he looks at me and he says, your sins are forgiven for my son's sake. Now, that's a really important point this morning because Satan will beat you up and you will stumble and Satan will say, you are a failure. Your sins are not. How can you say you're saved when you have done this kind of thing? And John knew that. And he begins by saying, I write unto you all, if I can use a Southern Dakota term, I write unto you all saying, for his name's sake, you've been forgiven. It's all because of Christ. See, everyone here is on equal playing field. He says, I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. The older men, he says, I write unto you, you know him. You see, your sins are forgiven. You have a relationship with him. You have experienced this. Verse 13, middle of the verse. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. Notice he didn't say ye are overcoming the wicked one. He's saying ye have overcome the wicked one. The enemy is defeated. He has no claim on you. He cannot still control you. You know this because you have a relationship with the Father. Verse 14, I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. What are the three things he tells us? He says, first of all, your sins are forgiven. Period. He says, you are not under Satan's rule. And he says, you have been empowered. You are empowered. The things that you could not do, you now can do because you have been empowered. Now, I, I read those three verses to you because when we hit verse 15, it almost looks like this finger is coming out and he's saying, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, you bunch of sinners. Change, change, change. And he is telling us to change. But that's not the attitude he tells us to change in. The attitude he tells us to change is, he says, your sins are forgiven. You are not under Satan's dominion. I have empowered you. Therefore, you don't have to live the perverted life that Satan tells you is the only way to have joy. The only way to be happy. So often we hear people say, well, you know, Christians, they just can't have fun. 
But I know when I get to heaven, it'll all be okay. But boy, I really am missing out right now. We've already believed this, the kernel of a lie. The lie is that Satan has anything that's good to give you that God didn't already give you. That Satan hasn't perverted. So let's look at this together. Reminders of what we shouldn't love. Beginning at verse 15, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, 15 is a broad statement. 16 is going to give you a much more specific statement. So we look at it and say, what is he telling us? John gave us the reminders to let us know that it's not only possible, but it's consistent with our decision to follow Christ to no longer live like the world. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe you're a believer that's been a few years, but you've never really been challenged that you're free now to change. You don't have to be under the dominion of Satan. You have to be under his control. Notice what he says. He says, love not the world. What does that mean? What does that mean? You know, we love people. When it's talking about people, it's people that you welcome, people that you would entertain, people that you would be fond of, people that you love dearly. You can love things. Things that just make you happy. But what does he mean when he says, love not the world? Well, let's first of all, often we want to jump immediately into our list of do's and don'ts. Ding, 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 don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What is he really telling us? Well, John defines what he's wanting us to know. First of all, he's not saying don't love the physical world that God created. We saw some beautiful, beautiful landscape while we were traveling. I love a good field. I love seeing the corn that's grown. It's not, it's not ready for harvest yet. It's not golden corn. It's green. It is so pretty. And then you see all of, going through Wisconsin, it seems like I see that more there. Maybe it's just known for that. But you see the beautiful red barn and the silos and the white house against the sea of green. And as you look at these hills and you look at the, the, uh, the patterns of the planting and stuff, it's just beautiful to look at. God is not saying, ah, 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 don't you love that? God gave us those things. Satan has done his best to corrupt it with weeds and thorns and thistles. But the good things you see, that's God. He's not telling you don't love the physical world that God created. He's not telling you not to love relationships. God made marriage. It's not good that man should be alone. Man desires companionship. God designed family. God designed society. God made the rules which regulated a sinful society. It's not wrong to enjoy fellowship. It's not wrong to love business. God told Adam to work and to have dominion over the earth and to work it. That's why we love to work. 
The only reason why we don't like to work is because sin gets injected into it and it gets messed up. It's not wrong to love government because he said have dominion. What does John mean then? John talks about the world as a system or as a philosophy, as a kingdom. Life that ignores or rejects God is the world. He says, don't love a system that ignores or rejects God. A life that is independent of God. A life that is lived based on this life alone. People that live and work so hard and they try to do everything they can to make this world good. But they don't see there's an eternal. He says, don't live that way. A life that's turned its back on God. You know, the average person today just never thinks about God. You try it. Just engage someone sometimes. Say, how's your relationship with God? Not preachy, not anything. Just say, how would you describe your relationship with God? And they'll kind of look at you like, huh? I don't know. I never think about God. I mean, does that ever happen to you? I mean, you ever talk to people and you realize there is no thought of God in their life. They're governed by instincts and desires that they're being taught in the world. Maybe you've heard this term. You ever heard the world of sports? When I was growing up, it was the wide world of sports. I always loved Sunday afternoons with the American sportsmen, but anyway, I digress. All right, so you've got this wide world of sports. Maybe some of you can remember the skier that just constantly, every week they'd show the skier that would wipe out the agony of defeat, okay? Well, this is, that's the idea he's describing here, the world of Satan. He says, love not the world of Satan, this philosophy. We live in the world, but he says we shouldn't live by the world's philosophy. I don't know if any of you are divers, not skydivers, but um, water divers, scuba divers. When you go into the aquatic world and you go down in the water, you're in the water, but it's not your native world, is it? You take tanks, you take a regulator and a breather, you have to wear fins, you have to put things on so that you can operate in that world. You know, that's the way we are in this world. We're like divers, we're like someone who Though you live and operate in this world, and it's a beautiful world, it's been messed up, and therefore we've got to have a regulator. We've got to have something that allows us to breathe and function in this. Now, what are the characteristics of the world? Look at verse 16 with me, please. He says, for all that is in this world system, and then he gives us three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, lust is the abuse of something which is naturally right. So lust, remember that word I used, pervert? 
Remember, remember that word? How it bends something, it doesn't go straight. Lust is the perversion, is the abuse of something that should be perfectly right. I thought this was so interesting. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 31 says, and he, remember chapter 7, he's talking about marriage and relationships, and he kind of broadens that whole concept, and he says, live as they that use this world, not abusing it. Live as someone who lives in this world, but doesn't abuse the things in the world. You know, many desires that we have are God-given. But they are not designed to control us. We are to have dominion over them. So let's, the lust of the flesh, the misuse of the flesh. That is living for our physical gratification. We're not operating based on principles. We're operating based on, well, I think this would feel good. And we're being dominated by that. Controlling what we eat. If a person is dominated by food, eat and drink. You hear some people talk about being a connoisseur of, of this food. Usually what happens, or of drink, they're usually dominated by that. What they talk about, when you live to eat, and are in bondage to the lust, the abuse of eating, that's the lust of the flesh. And I remember just kind of tighten it up just a little bit. No, the, the reality is when we're controlled by something that, that's a natural thing, God designed for us to eat, and God gave us all these good things to enjoy, and after the flood, God said, eat meat. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing. But when we're controlled by that, dominated, that would be the lust of the flesh. We see in our society today, God gave relationships. He gave sex. But it's now been perverted. It takes a bend. And rather than God saying, do this in a marriage relationship, and it will be glorious, it will be wonderful, and it will be fulfilling. Satan takes it out of what God has said, and we've seen in our society today, I really don't need to spend a lot of time on that. We've seen today, it's an abuse of the natural. He says, the lust of the flesh, the natural body desires, then he says, the lust of the eyes, the misuse of values. And how do we today? Instead of operating on fact, we operate on just the surface, what we see. When Israel was going to choose a king, why did they choose Saul? Because he was handsome and he was big and he was tall. And God told Samuel, don't look on the outward appearance. I look on the heart. You see, in our world today, rather than understanding that the outward is only a reflection of the inward, we just focus on the outward. 
But the lust of the eyes is that perversion of recognizing that what we are on the outside should be the display of what's on the inside. So our vision often leads us to the misuse of the flesh. But what we toy with in our minds and imaginations and our thoughts, this is the lust of the eyes. Focusing on appearance rather than character, whether it be clothing, whether it be homes, or cars, or you name it. That's the focus of the world. The world doesn't look at what kind of character is this person? The world just says, what's he got? You see how Satan has perverted? It starts, it's not wrong to have. God's the one who gave gold. God's the one who gave these things. But we've now perverted it into that what you have makes you who you are. And then the last one, the pride of life. It's the misuse of identity. Self-glorification. Pride of life. This is where, this is really a sin of the spirit. Lust of the flesh, sin on the body. Lust of the eyes, sin of the soul. Pride of life, sin of the spirit. This is where the temptation is to look down on someone else. Or I appreciated this one author said, it's, it's ambition, it's contempt of others, it's getting ahead at others' expense. And we see that everywhere in the world today. He says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to climb on top of someone else and not care about them to be able to get what you think the status is that you need. See, the world's saying, you got to be this, you got to be this, you got to be this. If you're one of these people, now you're really the in crowd. And those are the people you want to make friends with so that you can mix with them and you can be one of the in crowd too. But this doesn't look like Jesus Christ at all. Who did Jesus Christ befriend? Those who needed help. Jesus Christ reached out to those who were hurting. Jesus Christ didn't focus on being wealthy. You know, we have kids today that are embarrassed of their parents. Well, what would that have been like for God to be born into a poor family? Oh, you're the, you were born in a stable? You, you're a carpenter's kid? You work with your hands? You don't own a home? You see how this is all counter to everything that is in our society today? Because it was the relationship with the Father that was precious. And today to us, what makes me special? My relationship with God. I know God. It's not what I have. It's not what I drive. It's not what I wear. See, when you come to church, I, I, I think this is accurate. I, I, at least this is what my goal always is. You're not judged on what you wear when you come to church. So then what are you doing in a suit? 
Well, in our culture, and it's changing, but in our culture, this was what I would wear if I was going to show honor to somebody. So I just dress the best I can because I'm going to see God. Everyone wears, they do the best they can before God and we don't judge each other based on what you wear. My value is not in this suit. Suit doesn't mean a whole lot to me. What really is valuable, I'm valuable because God made me. You see how Satan has taken a good thing of identity and twisted it into the pride of life where we look down on each other. Social status. We want to take credit for things we didn't even do. Oh yeah, well I'm really smart. What did you have to do with that? My niece is Down syndrome. What did she have to do with that? Oh. The family you were born into. Did I have any part in that? No. You say, well, I'm adopted. Did you have any part in that? No. What about your abilities? Some of you are incredibly fast. A lot faster than me. I watched you as we played wiffle ball. Some of you can like go from here to here in a blink. Others of you stop and get a Coke along the way, right? What did you have to do with that? You say, well, I exercised. Yeah, well, I can exercise until I die, and I'm not going to be as fast as you. And it's not for lack of effort. It is, it was a gift. You see how, what do we do with sports figures today? We, we lift them up. We sit, people with incredible voices, we lift them up. People that are superstars, and we lift them up. That's the pride of life rather than recognizing the value that we have in Christ. There's the pride in influence, those we know. There's the pride in possessions, the wealth that we have gathered. But now let's talk about why don't we want to live this way. Look at verses 16 and 17. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lusts thereof, those misuses thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Let's look at this quickly. You, you can't love God and the world system. He says they're, they're opposites. James 4.4, 4, James, the brother of Jesus, was reminding us to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. You can't serve both of these two together. When you love the world, you deny the life that is in you. If you claim that Christ dwells in you, then you cannot love those things that stem from the abuses of God's gift. Paul made this statement. He said, hereafter, know we no man after the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. What was he saying? We're not looking at the world things anymore. 
What I want to know is, do you know Jesus? That's what's most important. Is it wrong to do sports? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to work? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to sing? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to have a house? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to enjoy cars? Absolutely not. But those are all gifts from God. What did Jesus tell us? He said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. You see, that's totally different from those that are trying to climb on top of each other to get to the top of the pile. You see, here is the concern. When you love the world, you are missing the point of the gospel. I'm going to say that again because I'm positive that didn't hit. When you love the world, you're missing the point of the gospel. You see, the world's stuff perishes. You miss the point of sin. Sin destroys and it's going to disappear. The whole circle of earthly advantages and pleasures which seduce from God or they are obstacles to Christ, those are all things that will not last. And you could have had the same joy in Christ. That's why for you young guys, I, would, I just always encourage you, make sure for you young, you young people, you young ladies, make sure that you focus on the fact if there's something good that you're really desiring, understand God is the one who's the author of that good and he's also giving you a path to get there without having to sin. Without having to be twisted, perverted, hurt yourself. So why does this matter? Why should not I love the world? Well, very quickly, there are four reasons. The world system is anti-God. Why? Because Satan is the author of the world system and Satan is anti-God. We don't usually think that way. We just kind of think at whatever we're seeing. We don't back up and see the big picture, the philosophy. Satan hates God. You're made in God's image. He wants to destroy you. The world system separates us from the Savior. Can't separate us from our salvation. But it can hinder our relationship with God so that we aren't enjoying that relationship. God didn't move. Three, why shouldn't I love the world? Because a growing child needs to spend time with his father to be like him. Oh, to be like thee, precious Redeemer. You know, that ought to be our constant longing and prayer. I just want to be like Jesus. When you spend time with someone, you begin to talk like them, you begin to look like them. Isn't it interesting? I mean, you get old people together, and how can husbands and wives begin to look like each other over the years? And that's funny until I get old, and now I'm thinking, poor Cindy. But, you know, you start thinking 
alike. You begin to talk alike, but especially my children. They react based on what they see. If you don't spend time with God, can you understand why you probably don't react like God? See, Satan has us distracted with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The last reason why you really don't want to imitate the world is the world's not going to last. It's going to blow apart. John reminded them that they were forgiven, that they were no longer defeated under the defeated power of Satan, that they had been empowered so that they wouldn't have to live like the world. Therefore... Don't live like the world. Love not the world. Take your security and your values from God. God gave you your ability to enjoy the good things of life. Don't misuse them. God gave you your worth in this life. Don't try to make yourself important. When these are present, when these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we lose our enjoyment of the Father's love, which we have through Jesus Christ, and our desire to do the Father's will. We find that our Bible reading becomes boring. Prayer becomes a chore. And Christian fellowship is empty and disappointing. And you're just always looking for an excuse for why you don't have to get with God's people. It's not that there's something wrong with others. What's wrong is a worldly heart. James 4.4 tells us it starts with friendship. And then we become spotted where the world leaves its, a few dirty marks on us in James 1.27. Then we become conformed to the world. And that's why Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. You see, all these different writers under the influence of the Holy Spirit are telling us the same thing. We idolize our athletes and our TV and music stars and our political leaders but conformity to the world can lead a Christian to being condemned with the world. What does that mean? It means we miss the blessing. It doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. Can I ask you a question this morning? Have you lost the joy of your father's love? Have you lost... Are you not enjoying that fellowship? And are you not enjoying God's word? Would you just take a moment and think, have I allowed a perversion of God's good gifts to where now I'm enjoying the lust of these fleshly desires rather than enjoying them the way God designed have I begun to look on the surface of things and based on how a person looks, I begin to think that that's what I should be like, not based on character? Have you begun to take your identity in something other than Jesus Christ? That'll steal your joy.
And if some of those things would be true in your life, you know the wonderful thing is that when we agree with God, when we confess our sin, and now we've had a change of mind because now we say, Lord, I agree, that's wrong. You know, he is always, you can always count on him. He will always cleanse us, get us on the right path. There's hope today. You don't have to stay the way you are. But maybe the other question I would have to ask you this morning is, have you ever received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? You see, your salvation is not based on who your parents are, not based on the good works you have done or how much you have given or how much volunteer work you have done. It's not based on whether or not you were baptized as a child. It's not based on anything. Remember what he said in verse 12? He said, your sins are forgiven for his sake. You see, the only way your sins can be forgiven is through Jesus Christ. Do you know that for certain? I don't say that to be critical. I don't say that to be condescending. I say that because all of us come to Jesus Christ the same way. Would you like to receive Christ today as your Savior?